Albert and the Land Crab, taken from It's a Rum Life, Book 3, Ivy House, 1970-1984. to Chapter 17. This happened in about 1974. They say many TV scripts are drawn from real-life happenings, and this one is truly worthy. About this time, Albert had been with us as our number one lorry driver for about four years. Michael, my brother-in-law, about 18 years old or so, was our mechanic. During his early youth, Michael had always been getting into scrapes of one sort or another, and while working for our family business, he was attending day release at college. We were engaged in mainly general haulage by this time. Our nucleus was collecting commercial tyres with problems and transporting them to the Tyre Manufacturers Conference, a complaint adjudication body owned and operated jointly by all the major tyre manufacturers in Great Britain. Albert was mainly on potatoes. We had a contract with John Hobster & Co, a leading potato merchant in Boston, and ran their number six lorry. This meant that every day the sixth load, and wherever it needed to go, we took it, and were paid appropriately by the mile. This was normally to the big nightly wholesale produce markets around the north of England, Blackburn, Leeds, Team Valley near Newcastle and sometimes Birmingham. Tachographs were unheard of at this time. There were just driver's hours regulations, a time limit for driving at the wheel each working day, accompanied by records kept in your logbook which stayed with the vehicle at all times. This particular day, Albert had been to Blackburn in Lancashire. It was just possible to get there and back in about eight hours, with luck, and it would be just after lunch. At this point, we must mention that Albert was a man of huge stature. He could pick up a full-size railway crossing gate on his back and carry it some distance. I've been asked on telling this tale why he should need to do this. Some time ago, Albert happened to find one of these gates for our main driveway and brought it back on a lorry. Before anyone had chance to assist, he had it off the lorry back and was bringing it down the drive unaided. I estimate five to six hundred weights, at least a quarter of a tonne. On this particular day, when our story developed, Albert needed to go into the town for some reason and asked Michael if he could borrow his car, a beige 1800 Land Crab. It was parked on the grass verge outside our yard, and Albert proceeded to the town. It didn't take him too long, and on his return, Michael was out somewhere. Albert left the car keys in our office, and happened to mention that Michael's fuel gauge was wonky as the reading on the way home was far, far less than when he went into the town. Albert went off home for his rest. In the meantime, I had taken Albert's lorry to some way-out farm in South Lincolnshire to load ten tons of potatoes 
for another Hobster delivery this next night and arrived back home shortly before Michael left for the end of the day. Michael came in for his car keys. Only a minute or two passed and Michael was back. Where's my car? he exclaimed for all to hear. The car outside looks like mine, but it isn't. Apart from the key being stiff in the lock and the colour being the same, its registration is totally different. Michael was highly agitated. On his way home that evening, he was due at the police station in Boston to take vehicle documents after an incident in Grimsby when a drunken driver had run into the back of his lorry, the lorry that Michael was taking for annual test. I phoned the police at Boston and asked if they had any reports about a car the same colour as Michael's but with a different registration. What can you tell me about this car? was the stern reply from the policeman on the desk. So I began to tell the story so far. I know it sounds hard to believe, but this is how it goes, etc. I think Mr. Whitehead, Michael, had better come straight to the station with this car, the policeman insisted. Michael managed with difficulty to get into the car with his key and start it up. If you saw Albert, I know he would not mind me telling you that not much resists his touch. Michael's car keys had almost fitted this other car and Albert's strong arm had done the persuading. The rest of the story we heard from Michael later in the evening. His journey to the police station was uneventful, which was a surprise considering what happened to that particular car's actual owner even later in the day. Michael produced the lorry documents he had promised to deliver originally and told the story of Albert's journey to Boston earlier in the day. They let Michael out again. I suppose the story was so incredulous it had to be true. Michael recovered his own car from the town centre car park and went home. The police contacted the owner of the other car who collected it from the police station and began to travel to his home in Freeston, a small village about three miles out of the town to the east. This was by no means the end of our story for the poor chap who owned the other car, the other 1800. On his way home, he was spotted by a police patrol car. After a brief chase, he was stopped and told he was driving a stolen vehicle. Of course, he said, I own it, and I reported it stolen earlier in the day. I've just collected it from the police station. This was all before police had personal radios. In fact, many patrol cars didn't have radios either. You'll just have to come back to the station and explain yourself, please, sir, or something like that was how the story then developed. Our poor, suffering, beige, 1800 owner had to go back to the police station and verify his story. How many miles that car actually did that day, I do not know exactly, but if only it could tell the tale. The story does not quite end here.
The reason we know the car owner's side of the story is that the very next day, two ladies were talking while working together at a vegetable pack house just out of the town. One was Albert's wife, and the other lady's husband owned a beige 1800 and had the most terrible experience the day before when his car had been taken away by mistake. Evidently, Albert had not noticed that two beige 1800s were parked side by side in the town centre car park. He had just chosen the wrong one. Albert being Albert, the car lock was no barrier apart from being a little stiff. We hope you've enjoyed this story brought to you by Cracker Books, written and read by Keith Sanders. Okay, this is a new ending to all our stories. There's no shop anymore. Since Covid, we decided to allow free access to all our complete books, videos and audio stories. You can access them all via our new website. The address is www.itsarumlife.com The spelling I-T-S a-R-U-M-L-I-F-E dot com. No spaces. It's a rumlife dot com. There we are. Have a, have a good look. And thank you for listening.